Liverpool, England. Two sisters rooted deep in a money-making enterprise involving a complex web of ordinary women from the working class of Liverpool conspire to ensure... Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Sure, their victims and then poison them to ascertain their insurance payouts. The race was on for the authorities to stop the Black Widows of Liverpool before it's too late. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this episode, I'd just like to say thank you to NordPass for sponsoring this video. It's brands like NordPass that make covering topics such as the one discussed in this video possible, so I truly cannot thank them enough. You may have seen in the news over the past couple of years stories covering major security breaches and cyber attacks. Cyber attacks that may have seen your personal information and passwords leaked to hackers. Now that's where NordPass comes in. They're more than just a password manager. They are the essential cybersecurity tool that everyone needs in their life. NordPass was created by the very same cybersecurity experts who built NordVPN, an advanced VPN security app which is trusted by more than 14 million users worldwide. This is what makes NordPass so secure. They're a zero-knowledge password manager, which means that no one but you can see what's in your encrypted vault, not even the NordPass team. Luckily for all of you, NordPass have given me an exclusive code, which means you can get all of this password security for 70% off. Every year, NordPass conducts global research into the top 200 most common passwords. And did you know that 123456 is the most popular password worldwide? With this in mind, upgrading both your passwords as well as your password security is crucial. So don't miss out on this exclusive offer. Get 70% off NordPass Premium at nordpass.com forward slash Joshua or using code Joshua. On top of this incredible deal, you'll get an additional month 
for free. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to grab your offer and a special thanks to NordPass for helping make content like this possible and for supporting this channel. I also quickly want to talk about my Twitch channel where I live stream true crime deep dives every Saturday at 10pm UK time, which is 5pm Eastern Standard Time and 2pm Pacific Standard Time. We usually spend between three and six hours exploring cases together on the stream, so if that sounds like something you'd be interested in taking part in, then be sure to head over to twitch.tv slash joshmiles and hit that little heart button to follow me over there. It's completely free and it's a great way for us to connect and chat in a more laid-back setting. We're trying to get to a thousand followers over there, so I would appreciate all of your support. Now, back to the case. Today's case begins in Liverpool, in the year 1880. After being granted city status, Liverpool's population skyrocketed to over 700,000. Approximately 20,000 people from Wales had moved to Liverpool in just one decade. In its earliest days, Liverpool was made up of just seven streets. All seven of these streets have remained on the map up until today, with only a few of them being renamed. These streets are called Castle Street, Chapel Street, Dale Street, Juggler Street, which was renamed to High Street, Moore Street, which was renamed to Tythebarn Street, Wiseacre Street, which was renamed to Old Hall Street, and Bank Street, which was renamed to Water Street. The case in question took place on number 5, Skirving Street. Skirving Street and the area surrounding it was considered a slum, where poor people and the working class just existed rather than lived. According to the British Library, BL.UK, the country had a very defined class divide at the time, and some may argue that the class divide is still very prominent within modern British society. There were three main tiers, the lowest being the working class, or those that did manual labour such as factory workers, street cleaners, and any other job that required large amounts of physical exertion. The second tier were often referred to as intelligent artisans, which referred to professionals who were skilled with their hands like seamstresses and carpenters. Those in the third tier were referred to as the educated working man, and this refers to those in what we now know as higher managerial positions or white-collar jobs. Now, the highest tier of society were the socially elite, the royals and the likes. Today, Skirving Street still exists and runs in between Scotland Road and Great Homer Street. The area has since been reformed and is no longer considered slums. And although the area is not the same as it was back in the 1800s, the crimes committed on Skirving Street are not forgotten. Two bachelorette sisters, Catherine and Margaret Flanagan, ran a lodging, which were more commonly referred to as rooming houses in the 1800s. Catherine and Margaret were both born in Ireland, Catherine being born in 1829 and Margaret in 1843. This 14-year divide between the sisters, though, didn't put a damper on their relationship, but rather strengthened it. The sisters both experienced the potato famine at a very early age, and like a large majority of families, theirs also migrated to Liverpool to escape the shortage. The potato famine, otherwise known as the Great Hunger, was a disastrous period for those who lived in Ireland. This event caused large-scale starvation, affecting the west and south of Ireland the most. Now, this event was caused by a mould called potato blight, I'll put the Latin name on screen now, which grew and spread through potato crops. 
It's a water mold which affects the quality of the crop, making it inedible. It could be recognised by the brown spots on the surface of the potato stalk leaves. The potato famine was such a big deal in Ireland because in the 1800s, potatoes were the main source of food in Ireland because it was calorie dense, easy to grow in their weather conditions, and it was used in many staple household meals. And so many families, like Catherine and Margaret, sought a desperate escape and fled to England and other countries. The sisters, as we know, settled in Liverpool, and once the sisters grew into adulthood, they decided that they wanted to start a business together, and so the two sisters bought a lodging in Liverpool which they co-owned. Not all too much is actually known about the sisters' personal lives in their early adulthood, but what we do know is that they both married their respected partners. Though, in a strange and eerie coincidence, both sisters would find themselves widowed. It must be noted that the information available on these early marriages isn't quite clear, so we're unsure whether um, these sources are referring to being, them being widowed prior to the events of this case, or whether they're referring them, to them being widowed later on in this case. It's pretty unclear, it's hard to find concrete and reliable information. Regardless, the sisters lived together both widowed and alcoholics, and neither had reading or writing skills. Catherine was the landlady of the property, whilst Margaret cleaned and maintained it. Also living at the lodging was Catherine's son, John Flanagan, who was 22 years old at the time. A hod carrier, which is essentially the job title of someone who carries bricks or other building materials using a brick hod on construction sites, named Thomas Higgins, his daughter Mary, who was eight years old, Patrick Jennings, a dock labourer who was also the brother of Thomas Higgins, and his daughter Margaret, who was 16 years of age, and they all lived together at the lodging. Just to clear up any confusion, for later on, there are two Margarets in this case. Margaret Higgins is one of the Black Widows carrying out the murders, and the other is Margaret Jennings, the daughter of the lodger, Patrick Jennings. Now, John Flanagan, who was Catherine's son, sadly died at the age of 22 in December of 1880. Although he had been a healthy man, his death did not raise any questions or concerns, and Catherine collected £71 in insurance from the Funeral Homes Insurance Plan. In 2019, that £71 would have been worth a little over £7,000, which is about $9,500. This money was easily obtained from funeral services, as back in the 1800s, most funeral homes were essentially a not-for-profit life insurance scheme. Members would pay a certain amount of money every month, and when a family member or a relative dies, that money would be given out to the deceased's family. Catherine and Margaret realised very quickly that they could take advantage of this system, and profit from the deaths of people close to them if they held a minimalistic funeral service. In 1882, Margaret Flanagan married Thomas Higgins, becoming Margaret Higgins, which is the name we shall be using to refer to this Black Widow sister throughout the rest of this case. And shortly after Margaret and Thomas married, Mary Higgins, who was Thomas's daughter from a prior relationship, became unwell and sadly died a month later. Margaret Higgins very quickly collected the £22 insurance money for Mary's death, which was worth just under £2,000 in today's money. Catherine Flanagan had Margaret Jennings, who was Patrick Jennings' daughter, both of whom lived in Catherine Flanagan's and Mary Higgins' lodgings, insured in late 1882, even though she had no personal relation to her, and in January of 1883, Margaret Jennings fell ill 
and died, and Catherine collected the insurance money. Patrick Jennings survived his experience with the sisters and escapes them. We'll come back to him later on in this case. The remaining survivors of 5 Skirving Street moved to 105 Latimer Street and very soon after to the basement of 27 Ascot Street. Thomas Higgins, still married to Margaret Higgins, then also fell ill and started complaining of stomach pains. Thomas was attended to once or twice by a medical gentleman called Dr. Whitford, and this doctor's opinion of Thomas's condition was that he had been suffering due to drinking bad whiskey or, quote, some other unwholesome drink, and then prescribed him accordingly. Along with the doctor, an insurance agent had come to witness the examination, as Catherine had insured Thomas for £50. This was normal protocol for such a large sum of money. In a drunken stupor, Thomas had given a small confessional to the insurance agent, being under the impression that the agent was a priest and he, Thomas, was going to die. A day or two prior to Thomas's death, a neighbour called Mrs Manville spoke to one of the sisters at their front door, and the sisters told this neighbour that Thomas had been very ill. Catherine Flanagan then invited Mrs Manville into the property, and it was immediately clear that Thomas had been suffering terribly in the time leading up to his death. The neighbour witnessed Thomas asking, through his agony, for a drink, and saw Catherine Flanagan take a spoonful of an unknown liquid from a mug and attempt to administer the liquid to Thomas, though Thomas refused to take it. On the 2nd of October, this neighbour heard Thomas complaining of thirst, and so fetched a drink of water from a different source. Thomas took that drink of water, turned over in bed, and died. When it became clear that Thomas had passed, Catherine took the mug that she had previously taken the unknown liquid out of and threw its contents into the fire. The doctor was then called and he signed his death certificate, listing Thomas's cause of death to have been dysentery. The doctor, though, had been surprised at how quickly Thomas had died. Despite the sudden death of Thomas, Margaret collected a total of £100 in insurance from four or five different funeral societies. Today, this £100 would be worth just under £9,000. Before his death, Thomas had told his brother Patrick Higgins about the insurance that Catherine had taken out on his life. Patrick, not being able to get over the premature death of his brother, visited all of the local insurance companies. It's also been reported that Thomas Higgins had mentioned consistent nagging from Margaret to get his life insured. It's also claims that Thomas had sent away an insurance agent with the words, quote, to hell with the clubs, you'll get no money from me. To get around Thomas's protests of having life insurance taken out for him, the sisters devised a plan and contacted one of the insurance companies. One of the insurance companies then sent out an agent to the home of the two sisters, as Margaret had tried to take out a £40 insurance policy on Thomas's life. Though, the man the insurance agent met when he showed up to the lodgings was not actually Thomas Higgins, and was in fact somebody pretending to be him. This information only surfaced after the news of the death of the real Thomas had been released, and the agent realised the face of the deceased did not match the face of the man that he had met. Patrick quickly found out that Catherine had insured Thomas with several different companies for large quantities of money. Patrick had also contacted Dr. Whitford, who had been the doctor that had visited Thomas before his death, and who had been shocked at Thomas's quick demise, and they both decided to go to the coroner's court to examine Thomas's body. It was through Dr. Whitford's perception and Patrick's insistence that something wasn't right 
that the sisters' true intentions began to come to light. A coroner's officer was instructed to procure an examination of the body of Thomas, and so the coroner's bailiff, along with the doctors, went to the house where Thomas had lived, arriving there on the day of Thomas's burial and wake. The doctors and coroner's office walked into 27 Ascot Street, where the wake was being held, to find a group of women having what could only be described as a party around the coffin. The funeral was stopped, and an examination on Thomas's remains was carried out. Dr Whitford concluded that Thomas had actually died due to an irritant poison. Catherine Flanagan, on noticing the doctors and the coroner's officer and the coroner's bailiff, let out a startled cry and left through the back of the house. She was not found for several days after his wake. After Catherine had fled Thomas's wake, she decided to go hide out in a house belonging to the Mackenzie family. Catherine would help the Mackenzie family mind their family store, though this time round, Catherine's behaviour had been somewhat strange. Mrs Mackenzie soon realised that any time a person came into the store to make a purchase, Catherine would hide behind the pantry door until the store was empty again. From this, Mrs Mackenzie became suspicious of Catherine, and her suspicion was only heightened when Catherine suddenly handed her a two-shilling piece and said she'd pay the Mackenzie family handsomely when she returned. After leaving the Mackenzie family, Catherine hopped from lodging to lodging to avoid the authorities. Eventually, she found herself in the company of a Mrs McGovern, who she had asked for a cup of tea. Mrs McGovern gave her the tea that she had requested, and slowly cups of tea turned into jugs of beer. It was apparent that Catherine was just trying to kill time, although Mrs McGovern couldn't figure out what for. Though we now know that Catherine was trying to kill enough times that she could leave the district by the night train. This, though, would not be the case, as the county police had caught wind that someone matching Catherine's description was drinking at Mrs McGovern's. The police arrived at Mrs McGovern's and arrested Catherine Flanagan for the murder of Thomas Higgins. To try and avoid arrest, Catherine tried to lie to the authorities and claim that her name was actually Catherine Clifford. But the authorities saw right through this blatant lie. When this didn't work, she admitted that she was Catherine Flanagan on the way to the police station and declared she was innocent and that she had no idea of the crimes which were being committed under her own roof. On her way into the police station, a crowd of angry villagers, hungry for justice, began jeering. The police had a hard time preventing this large crowd from assaulting Catherine on her way into the police station. Margaret had been made aware that the funeral for Thomas Higgins would not be going ahead until an autopsy had been conducted to properly determine his cause of death. The autopsy of Thomas's remains was carried out by Dr Davies, and this analysis showed that arsenic had been present in several organs of his body, including the spleen. This all led to the opinion that arsenic had been given to Thomas in small doses for a considerable time leading up to his death. It was evident that Thomas had actually died as a result of arsenic poisoning, but one question plagued the minds of the doctors. By whom was the arsenic administered? Thomas had been receiving his sole care from the sisters in the lead-up to his death. Had they been the ones to slowly murder Thomas? And if they had been, what had been their motive? The motive for the sisters was quickly determined to have been insurance fraud. They killed for the money, murdered to collect the nominal value an insurance company had put above their victims' heads. 
When the sisters were questioned, both completely denied the accusations. Margaret Higgins said that the only chemicals that she had administered to Thomas were the medications prescribed by the doctors for his diarrhea. She reiterated that before his death, he had diarrhea for three weeks and had been bedbound for eight days before passing away of dysentery, exactly what the doctor had diagnosed him with. The sole survivor of the sister's killing spree, Patrick Jennings, gave the following account of his experience living with the sisters. I am a labourer, and have, with the exception of three or four months, lived with Mrs Flanagan for about twelve years. My daughter and my wife also resided in the same house. My wife died soon after. I went to live with Mrs Flanagan and my daughter after three days' illness in January last. Shortly after dinner on a Sunday, Margaret, my daughter, became very ill, with violent vomiting and purging, and died three or four days after in great agony. Mrs Flanagan had insured her for £50 in the lives office, and for various sums in other societies unknown to me. I thought it strange and asked Mr Higgins what I should do. He advised me to take out letters of administration and apply at the offices of the lives, but when I went to draw the money, Mrs Flanagan and her daughter followed me like detectives. Out of the £50, I gave Mrs Flanagan £30 and her daughter £3, keeping £17 for myself. Mrs Flanagan also received £9 from the Scottish Friendly Society, out of which she gave me half a sovereign, which was 10 shillings or half a pound sterling. I also heard that she insured my wife for £16. She denied it, but I afterwards ascertained that she had done so. During my daughter's illness, Mrs Flanagan frequently administered medicine to her, which she said she obtained from the Sixpenny Doctors in Walton Road. When she was absent, the sister, the wife of the deceased man, Thomas Higgins, gave the medicine. After that, I was afraid to live in Mrs Flanagan's house any longer, and took fresh lodgings. But one night, sometime afterwards, when I was on the beer, she persuaded me to go and live with her, the neighbours often remarked about the suddenness of my daughter's death, and one said, God help you, poor man. Mind yourself while you are there. I saw the deceased man, Thomas Higgins, on the day before he was taken ill. In fact, he was in a public house in the neighbourhood of Athol Street on the Sunday. He was taken ill on that Monday and died on the Tuesday. Mrs Flanagan went to the A-house just before the funeral was to take place. But when Mr Patrick Higgins and doctors came, she disappeared. I saw her an hour afterwards going in the direction of her house in Latimer Street, but shortly afterwards she was not there, and I have not seen her since. Margaret Higgins, previously Margaret Flanagan, was arrested on a murder charge. Days later, Catherine Flanagan was also arrested, and both sisters were questioned in connection to the murder of Thomas Higgins. The authorities started collecting evidence for their case against Catherine and Margaret, and found traces of arsenic on their clothing and in their home. It was found that Margaret had a small pocket in her dress where she kept small amounts of arsenic for convenience. There was also a small glass bottle in the cabinet labelled, quote, mixture as before. After testing, it was found that this bottle had also contained arsenic. After finding the arsenic, the bodies of John Flanagan, who died aged 22, Margaret Jennings, who had been 16 when she was killed, and Mary Higgins, who had tragically been just eight years old when she passed, were exhumed and tested for arsenic poisoning. 
Deadly amounts of arsenic were found on all three bodies, and with all this evidence that the authorities now had, Catherine and Margaret were charged with their murders. Through investigation, the authorities had found out that the sisters had gotten the poison by soaking arsenic flytraps in water, and using the same water in food and drinks served to their victims. Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins went on trial for the murder of Thomas Higgins, Margaret Jennings, and John Flanagan on the 14th of February 1884. It's interesting to note that despite being charged with the murder of Mary Higgins, neither sisters were actually tried on that count. The trial lasted three days, during which Catherine did her best to pin all of the blame on her sister. When this didn't work, she offered to, quote, turn the Queen's evidence in order to get a shorter sentence. After her offer for a lighter sentencing was declined, Catherine claimed there to be at least six or seven more victims who had been killed for the insurance money. On top of this, she gave the authorities the names of two other poisoners who were claiming the insurance money of their victims. The names given by Catherine were Margaret Evans, Mrs. Beagley, and obviously Margaret Higgins as poisoners, and their accomplices who had cashed in on the insurance as Margaret Potter, Mrs. Fallon, and Mrs. Stanton. She also had mentioned a woman by the name of Catherine Ryan, who had obtained the poison for Margaret Evans. All of those names by Catherine were investigated and were found to be close to multiple similar deaths and had claimed insurance money on them all. Although these poisoners seemed to be doing the same thing as Catherine and Margaret, the police would not take action as Catherine had offered this information in return for leniency on her sentence. The prosecution used the fact that Catherine had fled the funeral proceedings and had tried to evade the authorities as evidence that she had been alarmed and that she had been hiding from justice. Further evidence presented in the trial was that of one of Margaret Higgins' pockets, which had contained fluff and dust. Upon analysis, it was found that distinct traces of arsenic had been present in Margaret's pocket. The prosecution inferred from this evidence that Margaret had carried arsenic about with her in her pocket in a vial, and that some of it had leaked out and got into the dust and fluff which had accumulated in her pocket. With all of this evidence, and after a strong case was presented by the prosecution, after the three days were up, the jury spent 40 minutes deliberating before coming to the conclusion that both sisters were guilty. The jury had come to the conclusion that the sisters were guilty based on the fact that during Thomas Higgins' eight days bedbound, they were the only two people with access to him and his meals. As a result of this guilty verdict, both of the sisters were sentenced to death. The sisters' crimes were described as cold-blooded in the inquest published by the Liverpool Mercury. On March 3rd, 1884, Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins were hanged publicly. Despite it snowing on the day of their deaths, a thousand people had still gathered outside the jail to see the black flag fly, a sign that both sisters were dead and the authorities were willing to kill those who opposed the law. Although Catherine and Margaret shared their methods with multiple women of their own social class, their killings also inspired a woman called Elizabeth Maybrake, who was of an upper class. The following accounts of Elizabeth Maybrick's case were taken from an article in the Topeka Daily Capital that was published on the 8th of August 1889. A baby dropped a letter in a muddy street. The nursemaid opens the soil missive to put it in another envelope. The trifling incident reveals a most sensational story of husband poisoning and has brought the baby's mother under sentence of death. The letter was written with a pencil and addressed to A. Brearley, Huskisson Street, Liverpool. It reads as follows. Dearest, your letter under cover to G came to hand just after I gave them for you on Monday. 
I did not expect to hear from you so soon, and delay occurred in giving him the necessary instructions. Since my return, I have been nursing all day and night. He is sick unto death. The doctors held a consultation yesterday. Now all depends upon how long his strength will hold out. Both my brothers-in-law are here, and we are terribly anxious. We cannot answer your letter fully today, darling, but relieve your mind of all fear of discovery now or in the future. M has been delirious since Sunday, and I know he is ignorant of everything, even of the name of the streets, also that he has not been making any inquiries whatever. The tale he told me was a mere fabrication, and only intended to frighten the truth out of me. In fact, he believes my statement, although he will not admit it. You need not, therefore, go abroad on this ground, dearest, but in any case, don't leave England until I have seen you once again. You must feel that these two letters of mine were written under circumstances which must ever excuse their injustice in your eyes. Do you suppose I could act as I am doing if I merely felt what I inferred? If you wish to write to me about anything, do so, as all letters pass through my hands at present. Excuse the scrawl, my darling, but I dare not leave the room for a moment, and I do not know when I shall be able to write to you again. In haste your own, Flory. This letter had been handwritten by Florence Elizabeth Maybrick, or, you know, we're just going to be referring to her as Elizabeth Maybrick, who had been the wife of James Maybrick. Within a few hours of the nursemaid opening the letter, James Maybrick was a dead man. The nursemaid gave the letter to Edwin Maybrick, otherwise known as Edward Maybrick, who is one of James's brothers, and Edwin permitted the funeral of James to go on to avoid arousing any suspicion, though he kept a close eye on the widow and consulted with the police. Shortly after the funeral, while Florence Elizabeth Maybrick had been ill in bed, claiming to be prostrated by her husband's death, the police made her a prisoner and removed her to the hospital ward of Waltham Jail. Elizabeth Maybrick was the daughter of a banker called Chandler, who lived in Mobile, Alabama, at the time of the late war. The late war that they're referring to here is likely to have been the late war between the United States and Great Britain, which occurred in 1812. After Chandler died, though, his widow, Elizabeth's mother, married a man called Baron von Rogue. Baron had been an officer in the German army and for some time had been on the personal staff of the late Emperor Frederick when he was crown prince. When Elizabeth and her mother came over from America to England, Elizabeth, who had been just 18 years old at the time, met a man called James Maybrick. James Maybrick had been 40 years old at the time that he had met 18-year-old Elizabeth and had, been running a large biz and had been running a large business in the cotton industry in Liverpool. James Maybrick fell in love with Elizabeth and after their arrival in England, actually followed her and her mother to London. James and Elizabeth were married at once in St. James's Church in Piccadilly. The bride was described as being from Norfolk, Vancouver, which is incorrect. Elizabeth, though, already had her own fortune of about $6,000 a year left to her by her late father. That's $6,000 a year in that, like, in 1800s money, so that's a lot of money today. Further, James, her new husband, owned a fine residence, Battlecrease House, Grassendale, which is a suburb of Liverpool. The newlyweds went to live there and two children were the fruit of the marriage, who, since the arrest of their mother, have been placed in the custody of their grandmother. James Maybeck had two brothers, one of them called Michael and the other called Edward or Edwin. Michael was actually a well-known baritone at London concerts and better known in America as Stephen Adams, the composer of Nancy Lee and other popular songs at the time. 
A few weeks before James's death, James travelled to London to see his brother Michael. While in London, James complained to his brother of feeling strangely unwell and said that he'd been taking medicine which, instead of making him feel better, actually made him feel worse. James only stayed in London for a few days before returning to Liverpool, and a few days before the letter would be dropped by his baby into the mud, James became bedbound and his health dramatically declined. Subsequently, his brothers Edwin and Michael were summoned to be by his side. Michael stated that he found his brother James in bed after rushing to his brother's bedside from London. Quote, I found my brother James in bed attended by a nurse, the nurse in question being his wife, Elizabeth Maybrick. He'd suggested that Elizabeth would benefit from hiring a new nurse, to which she replied with a startled, what do you mean? She stated that she had the most right to nurse her husband as his lover and declined any form of help. Regardless, Michael enlisted the help of two doctors and a nurse who had scolded Michael and Elizabeth for the bottle of brandy and meat extract among the medicines. Michael took a stroll in the garden after the doctors and the nurse had settled. When he arrived back indoors, he walked in on Elizabeth putting whiskey in a wide neck bottle and swapping the labels before putting it into the medicine cabinet. Michael had argued with Elizabeth about her actions. The nursemaid in this case, who had exposed the entire affair by opening the letter dropped by the baby into the mud, was a woman called Alice Tapp. Alice Tapp testified in court that Elizabeth and James had some strong words the march before James's death. The topic of these heated words had been Elizabeth's insistence on going to the races. A few weeks afterwards, Alice had her attention called by the housemaid to something in a basin in the bedroom. The basin was covered with a towel, and upon removing the towel, Alice and the housemaid found a number of flypapers on a plate with a liquid on top of them. This was particularly strange, as the housemaid hadn't seen any flies about the house at the time, so she was confused as to the purpose of the flypapers. Though, as we know now, Elizabeth actually took the idea of soaking arsenic flypaper in water from the Black Widows of Liverpool, Catherine and Margaret. Elizabeth wanted to murder her husband. At about the same time that the housemaid and Alice found the flypapers, James Maybrick began to fall ill. Alice claims that she had never known James to fall ill so gravely before. The housemaid told Alice that he had an overdose of medicine that had been ordered for him by a doctor in London and that he had become very sick. This testimony was actually confirmed by three nurses from the Liverpool home. Two chemists were called to prove that Elizabeth purchased the fly papers, which they did. The family cook also testified that Elizabeth had asked her to make lemonade for James, though when the cook went to give the lemonade to James, Elizabeth took it from the cook and told her that it must only be used as a gargle. Other witnesses had noticed a dark sediment in the soup that Elizabeth had given to her husband James. A nurse called Nurse Celery overheard the sick James implore his wife Elizabeth not to give him the wrong medicine, as he feared she did sometimes, but he felt so queer after taking it. Elizabeth retorted sharply by asking what he was talking about. A woman called Mrs. Sunner, a stylish young woman who went to the races with Elizabeth in March, testified that Elizabeth had told her that she hated her husband and that she, quote, would make it hot for him. All the witnesses testified that they had seen Elizabeth alone in public talking with a man called Brearley, who is the same man that the letter was written for. AKA, little Miss Elizabeth here was having an affair. 
When Elizabeth Maybrick went to trial, her only defence was the claim that her husband had recreationally used arsenic. Regardless of her claims, the jury found her guilty for the murder of her husband, James Maybrick. She took the idea of soaking arsenic flypaper in water and use it to kill her husband from the Black Widow Sisters, and she stood trial in St George's Hall in Liverpool, the same place that the Black Widow Sisters had been tried. Much like Catherine's and Margaret's case, Elizabeth Maybrick had received an aggressive reaction from the general public. Waiting outside of the court after her trial, crowds screamed shame at her and tried to attack the carriages as they left. Elizabeth Maybrick was found guilty and was hanged. And that's everything that we have for you in today's case. If you guys want to join in while we go through true crime cases live, then head over to my Twitch channel. We do true crime deep dives every Saturday at 10pm UK time, which is 2pm Pacific time and 5pm Eastern time. If there's a better day or time that you think would work better for these deep dives, don't hesitate to let me know. We don't just do true crime deep dives though, we also do other streams like every Monday, Wednesday and Sunday at 10pm UK time, 2pm Pacific time and 5pm Eastern time. We hang out together and play games like Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, Pokemon, Minecraft, My Life at Porsche and more. So don't miss out, head on over to twitch.tv slash joshmiles and hit the little heart button to follow me over there. We're trying to get to a thousand followers over there so I would super appreciate any of your support. We also do charity live streams, and in the last charity live stream, I was live for 13 hours. We managed to raise $750 for the DNA Dope project. You can find a link in the description and in the pinned comment. Thank you to NordPass for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to use the link in the description to grab your deal today. Be sure to subscribe to this channel if you want to see more true crime content just like this episode, and hit that bell icon to be notified whenever I upload a brand new true crime video. We also have a Discord server if you're interested in joining us over there, and any other links to anything else going on you can find down below. With all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.